Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine, and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face, you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Girls on Film. I'm Anna Smith and I'm coming to you from Cameo Studios in Mayfair. I am thrilled to welcome some very special guests to this Sundance London special episode. The first is Sophie Hyde, the director of Animals. Welcome, Sophie. Hello, thank you for having me. And the second is Lulu Wang, the director and screenwriter of The Farewell. Hi, thank you. Lovely to have you here. Um, now, your, your films are two of the ones showing at Sundance London, which kind of curates some of the best of Sundance Film Festival. And I'm so happy to see such a wonderful showing from brilliant female directors like yourselves. Sophie, let's start with you. Would you set up the story of animals for the listeners? Uh, animals is essentially a story of two um, friends who've been living together and partying together for about 10 years. It really looks at whether, you know, as they move forward in their life, whether their friendship is still something that's satisfying for them. So it's, uh, yeah, it's about friendship, but also about desire and, and how you find your own path. And um, I guess it's a celebration of a female friendship without it being something that has to stick around forever. Girls are tied to beds for two reasons. Sex and exorcisms. So which was it with you? <laughs> what do you use for pictures? Ground up paracetamol. Nice. What do you say your name was again? Chicken sandwich. Mm, that's a beautiful name. <laughs> we are going deep tonight. They're going to build a statue of us, immortalised in marble. This is the bit where I puke. <coughs> the golden years. <sighs> Sophie, you've got a couple of great actresses in the lead roles. Who have you cast? We've cast Holiday Granger. She's Laura. And uh, she's most well known for sort of period dramas, things like Great Expectations. And then we've got Alia Shawkat, who, you know, we watched grow up on screen on Arrested Development. And then we've seen her be in a whole lot of independent American films and also TV shows. And she's often kind of a quirky, dorky, cool character. Um, and I wanted to cast people that felt surprising in the roles. And for me, there was a surprise in seeing Holiday do something very modern and very kind of grounded. And then Alia, you know, is an indie darling of America. And I wanted to see her in a role like this that was a little bit more glamorous and, and that she could really revel in. She does have a fabulous array of costumes in this. Actually, they both do. I wanted all their clothes. These kind of really dramatic kind of dressing gowns and loads of sequins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we always wanted it to be like very dilapidated glamour, very grotty glitter, you know. And um, our costume designer is uh, an Australian who we brought over and she did a fabulous job. And in fact, like really helped create that character in particular of Tyler. Um, now, in terms of the novel, it's based on a novel, isn't it? Yes. Um, what made you choose that one in particular? Well, I was originally sent a script, a very early script, and I read, I picked up the book the same day and read it. And I loved seeing these women that felt very, very familiar to me, but I hadn't been seeing much of on screen. And there was a really visceral quality to the writing. It felt like I was inside the body of that character and, and the body was very important in terms of understanding desire and our place in the world. And um, 
I wanted to tell something that wasn't a kind of traditional romantic story. So I wanted to focus on a relationship that wasn't romance. And uh, so that felt good. I thought there were lots of really interesting scenes and very funny scenes, which sort of reminded me of Absolutely Fabulous in, in a more kind of sophisticated modern way, where the two girls kind of rock up to various family events rather drunkenly. And I love the balance that you get between comedy and drama there. And sometimes it felt like it was used to comic effect. And then later in the film, without giving away any spoilers, it's much more dramatic. Mm. Uh, was that important to you, sort of using that same kind of device? Yeah, I mean, I think comedy is so brilliant at sort of helping us to have pleasure when we're watching something. But you staying just inside sort of the laughs, you often sort of miss something else. But I think there's so many cases of really great storytelling now where it's very funny but also very real and that kind of pathos comes from that very real place. And so we were definitely trying to find that, locate it, yeah. I think you succeeded. Well done. And it's set in Dublin, isn't it? And yeah. the, book, the book's not set in Dublin, no, is that right? The yeah. book's set in Manchester. Yeah. Uh, we moved it to Dublin and, and partly for financing. But I love the move to Dublin. I just think it's like, you know, there's like poetry on every corner and the girls are very literary and so it's sort of, and they drink a lot and that sort of fits in. But then it also elevated the film a bit. You know, we have these dilapidated buildings and these great streets and Manchester was a strong character in the um, book and so it was really important not to just make it generic city but to give a sense of place um, so Dublin was a good place for that. It does feel very Dublin I'm sure it's some, something that resonates with a lot of women like myself who've done their share of partying and, and, and have really really good girlfriends but you know you reach a stage in your life where you're trying to take stock and work everything out so yeah, yeah beautifully done. Well we, and we hope that we're not just moralising about that stage but you Not know, at all. <laughs> I thought you got that balance really well because I, you know, you hate it when it's, you know, the first ten minutes is great fun and then it's just, it's just kind of tipping the booze down the sink <laughs> yeah. kind of vibe. Yeah, no, I thought you got that balance really, really well and still ended on a lovely note. Thank you, um, Lulu. Let's turn to you for the moment. Um, can you describe the farewell for our audience? Yeah, the farewell is based or loosely based on a true life story of my family. My grandmother was diagnosed a few years ago with stage four lung cancer and given a few months to live, except that in China, where she lives, the doctor often tells family members as opposed to the patient themselves. And uh, her family, her, her sister, decided it would be best not to give her the news that she was ill and informed all of us who live abroad and ultimately decided to come up with the plan of forcing my cousin to get married and have an elaborate wedding as a ruse for everyone to go back to China and say goodbye to my grandmother without her knowledge. And the movie stars Aquafina, and yeah. What's wrong, Dad? Please tell me. My nan is dying. She doesn't know, so you can't say anything. The family thinks it's better not to tell her. Why is that better? Chinese people have saying, when people get cancer, they die. We have to go to China. Wedding is an excuse so everyone can see her. He's my only cousin. Do you think I should be there? You can't hide your emotions. If you go, then we'll find out right away. It's an extraordinary story, isn't it? I mean, to, to my ears, you think, what? This really happens? But are you saying this is actually quite traditional that often people don't tell? The relatives. Well, that's what I came to learn. In the when it happened to me, 
I just thought it was so crazy and I thought it was only my family and I didn't understand that it was cultural. And since I've, um, I did the story first for This American Life podcast in the States and then I made the movie and through both the podcast and now the film, people have come up to me and said, oh, we did this in my family to my grandparent and we're from South America or from the Middle East. And so it's not even just in Asia. It's just kind of a crazy cultural phenomenon. Let's talk a little bit about Aquafina because this is a slightly more, it's a funny film in some ways, but it's a slightly more dramatic role for her, isn't it? Uh, definitely. And when I cast her, it was before Crazy Rich Asians, before Ocean's 8. So I wasn't actually familiar with her acting work at all. And when my producer brought up her name, I was like, isn't that the girl from My Vag? Love the music video. Hilarious, <laughs> but just not what you would think as a dramatic lead. And um, she and I had coffee because she had read the script and loved it. And she told me how she was raised by her Chinese grandmother and had a really personal connection to the story. And then she sent in a self-tape of a couple scenes. And she was just so good in it. And I realize now that if you cast somebody who is known to be hilarious, to be really strong, when they break, when they cry, it means that much more. Um, and it's that much more impactful. And like what you were saying, it's so great to cast somebody in an unexpected role. Well, actually, that leads me on to one of the questions I wanted to ask you both. Do you kind of consciously think about breaking new ground? Because I feel like you both have in your films here. Or do, is, do you think it's something that comes naturally? Yeah, for me, I'm not necessarily looking to do what's never been done before. You know, it isn't necessarily novelty for the sake of novelty. For me, it's always just trying to find authenticity and specificity. And I think when you do specificity and get as specific as possible, you inevitably are original. Yeah, I would agree about the specificity idea. Like, you're always looking for that. I mean, I think, though, as well, that, you know, we've had films that sort of just uh, reinforce the status quo for a long time. And I think there is something about challenging that in whatever form, and whether that's through just a shift in the narrative or changing the way you're casting or telling stories by women, God forbid. Um, you know, these things are challenging that status quo, and I think that's part of our job as well. Lulu, do you feel that Crazy Rich Asians has now kind of helped bring these kind of stories into the mainstream and then this is something that films like yours will continue to forge a path for? I certainly hope so. Our film was made before Crazy Rich Asians, but the fact that Crazy Rich Asians has really started this conversation and the the box office success certainly helps um, people to be more open and in investing in um, Asian American stories. But I just hope that, as some people call it, it's a trend. And I certainly hope it's not a trend because I think the danger of that is that then if one of the films does, doesn't do well, then everybody suddenly says, oh, okay, it's, it's no longer a trend, as opposed to just representing stories that actually portray what America looks like as a country or the world is looking like as a country. Well, it's progress, I hope, rather than a trend. You know, Absolutely. it's just the way, what should have happened many, many years ago. Exactly. Um, now, both your films centre around female friendship. What do you think is the key to getting female relationships right on film, Sophie? Uh, for me, you know, all relationships are complicated and they're interesting and, and, and that's what the stuff of life that we, we love to look at. I mean, female relationships are 
you know, also troubled by or also impacted on all the expectations around us of who we're supposed to be and, and kind of trying to work out what we want, which is not always easy when you're constantly living up to other people's ideals and other people's judgments. And I think um, that means that those friendships are can be very needy and also very beautiful and they're very supportive and at the same time difficult. You know, I think all of that, you know, we were talking about specificity. I think that's what it is, is the two characters, how do they interact what's going on in their world specifically, yeah. That's really interesting. And um, Lulu, obviously yours is more about family relationships, but I love the fact that it's really mainly about the female relationships within that. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you feel was was the key to that authenticity? Yeah, I, I think all of the women are very, very strong in the film and in my family, in my life in general. And I wanted to explore the dynamics between them, all of their different strengths without watering anybody down you know I certainly got a lot of notes saying well aren't we being stereotypical by making the mother so mean and to me as long as you understand where it's coming from she's not necessarily being mean it's that's just her way of speaking and I think also all the women in the family have different ways of expressing love and to sort of water it down by having them express in a way that we're used to is just inauthentic. And just because they're not saying the words, I love you, their love language doesn't sound and look like what we're all used to, it doesn't mean that it's not real. And so it's about recognizing that, that everybody has their own way. And, you know, even like to provide an arc for these characters, they don't have to kind of come around. They don't have to change. I think that's also important to say that women can be flawed and stayed flawed. It's not about a lesson that they learn. Well, that's what we're all about in Girls on Film and every great female director I speak to says the same thing. Complex female characters are many, many things, you know, and, and cinema spent way too long trying to put people in a box, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's male or female, but particularly, I think, female, when you were saying just then, like, people saying they didn't stereotype her as being mean. Now, would they say that about a male character, you know, that's... Exactly. And also just like not always having to find some kind of resolution. I think in life that women with daughters, sisters, friends, we have very complicated relationships that don't always have a very pet ending. And mm. it's more about acceptance. Yeah, we we fairly had to find a way to tell that in a story that was about a friendship that was ending that needed to have kind of dramatic conflict, but also to like really celebrate and enjoy that friendship and not ty- kind of demonise it or say, that's it forever, they're done. You know, exactly. as, how, how do we enjoy that and love what that is at the, for, for what it is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I ask you, Sophie, what kind of gender balance you have on set behind the scenes? Mm. I mean, the film is very much led by women, so it's... um. There are four producers and three of them are women and there's a female writer, a female director and a lot of key creatives are female. I don't know the exact numbers actually. Um, I just did a TV series in Australia which was 60% women, which I've never seen before. Um, what was the series? It's called The Hunting. It's uh, about kids sharing explicit photos of them, their friends online. Wow. It's, mm, it's actually quite dark material but <laughs> that was led by women and, and the crew was 60% women. Um, but certainly Animals very much was driven by the women on the crew. And I, I do tend to find that there are more women on set if there are women in the producing roles and mm-hmm. directing roles. And is that the case with your previous films as well, like 52 Tuesdays? <laughs> well, 52 Tuesdays, there was only like five crew members wow. across the whole year. So It I'm was such a great film, by the way. <laughs> Bravo. I remember reviewing it at the time. It blew me away. Oh, thank you. Yeah, um... I mean, I have a very strong team that I work with all the time and that's made up of men and women and they will continue to work with me. But it's certainly something that 
we work quite hard to consider. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lulu, for this and your other films, are you very female focused behind the scenes? I am, yeah. My producer on both my first feature, Posthumous, and this film was female. And then all of my department heads, cinematographer, production designer, costume designer, primarily female. I want to say, I think that there's a subconscious level of intention when um, I hire that way. I don't think I necessarily go out and say, if there's a male that's great for the position, I'm going to say no to them uh, to hire a female. I ultimately look for the person that's best for the job, of course. But the example of how I hired my um, cinematographer is kind of how I look at why we need to be more inclusive when we're hiring because I got sent lists and lists of DPs that had all had films in major festivals and I didn't connect with any of them. And it wasn't because of gender or race or anything. I just wasn't feeling emotionally connected to their work. And I just said, there's got to be more people than what I'm seeing on these lists. And if you really analyze the list, you would find that they are predominantly male and white. And so... I just kept looking and it was from a, an emotional place of wanting to connect with the, the work of my DP and until uh, my cinematographer's name came up, Anna uh, Francesa Solano, who is non-union. Um, she's worked in China before, but she's Spanish and she just wasn't represented at one of these big agencies. And as soon as I saw her work, I connected so emotionally that I hired her without having met her. And when we met, we got along great. But that just goes to say how how the hiring process works, right, is that we, when we, we're always given these lists and you have to look at, well, who has had the opportunity to get on the list historically because they've had the opportunity to work the most. You have to work quite hard, is my feeling, like to, to cast outside of that list. And yeah. we always say to our crew, like, if you are just thinking about who you're crewing up, please consider if there's any women around and mm-hmm. or, or anyone that you feel like might not have a place that, that might not be getting all the work. Are there people that, that aren't at the table? And that doesn't mean definitely hire them. That just right. means like, in you know, consciously think about it. Um, I've had the same thing, even looking for directors on that TV series. I was asking for a female director and the agencies kept sending me men, suggesting men. And it's like, there are a lot of women, but they are not being put up by their own agencies a lot of the time, I think. Exactly. And even in requesting for that, you're still not getting it. Mm -hmm. Imagine what happens when you don't request that specifically. So I think, as you said, it's not specifically hiring based on gender or race, but it's about inclusivity in the pool of people that you're looking at so that you're given a a fair balance of different types of people. Well, Sundance is known for being relatively inclusive, I would say. And I think Sundance London in particular has got a great showing from, you know, more more diverse selection of directors and actors and people behind the scenes. What would you say Sundance London brings of the real Sundance in the US? What kind of flavour can people expect if they're coming along? I mean, I think they've chosen really well, but that's, you know, like applauding myself or something. Um, but I, I feel like they've worked really hard in terms of diversity across the board. Uh, I think Sundance compared to a lot of the big film festivals and certainly Kim Yutani coming in um, as the programming director. She has made a distinct effort for that and not just um, politically, but also because of the kinds of films she wants to see as sort of freshness. And that's what you expect from Sundance. Like you want... Fresh voices, new voices, interesting storytelling, a new take, um, people that are challenging things and having a good time doing it. And I think 
that is what Sundance offers. And in a world where we're just swamped with content, I mean, I really look to those kind of curators and those organisations to know what to see. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's about um, representing what our world is actually looking like, right? So this idea of, for for me, it was really important that The Farewell was represented as an American film, because we're certainly not a Chinese film. And that's my dilemma as somebody, as an immigrant, and who's always lived between two different worlds. Well, what am I really? I'm American. I grew up in America. That Those are my cultural values. That is my perspective. And so for my film not to be seen as American is yet again reinforcing that I belong nowhere. But the reality is that this film is an American film. It's about somebody who lives in America and what happens when she's trying to navigate between the two different worlds. And so for Sundance to recognize that is one example of just how they're doing things so wonderfully. Well, congratulations to you both on Animals and the Farewell. Um, Terrific films. Will we be seeing them in the UK later this year as well as at Sundance? Yeah, Animals is releasing in August. Um, The Farewell, I don't think we have a date yet, but it's going to be released in the UK this summer. Fantastic. Well, thank you both very much indeed for coming in to Girls on Film. My next interview is with Alison Clayman, the director of The Brink. Welcome, Alison. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. You have made an absolutely fascinating fly on the wall documentary about former White House chief strategist Steve Bannon. Uh, Tell us more about the film. So as you said, the movie, you know, it's it's sort of verite cinema. It's not interview based. It's really gives you a look behind the curtain at the activities of Bannon and the far right um, globally. I followed him for 13 months. I shot the film myself. I started um, just after he left the White House in fall of 2017. And the film ends with the 2018 midterm elections. If I had not come as the CEO of the campaign, Trump would not have won. That's a fact. The White House, there's no glamour to the job at all. I hated every second I was there. Just stay focused. I'm on a mission to convert as many people as possible. You are part of a worldwide movement. Take out the sword and throw away the scabbard. So much happened in that time. Were you working crazy long hours every day during that period? So I don't think I would have had my sanity if I filmed with him every single day. (laughs) Um, But as the time went on, the last few months of that period, as the access got better, just because that's kind of naturally how it does, you kind of insert yourself into someone's life and kind of break down the the barriers as much as as possible. So there were some really long days. Um, I would roll whenever I was in his presence, basically, um, because I felt like it was important. I was there not for my um, pleasure or enjoyment. And it was really to get, you know, this documentation. So some days I might end the day with, you know, eight, ten hours of footage, uh, and I was working alone, so then I am up downloading that footage. So that's kind of another reason why, you know, I would need to take breaks as we went, but it was some long days. I had a couple hundred hours of footage. You mentioned the fact that obviously the relationship progresses and develops as you are filming someone. What was Steve Allen like when you first met him, and how, how quickly did that sort of start to shift? I feel like he was pretty consistent throughout. I think, um, you know, from the first time I met him, I met him right after he had wrapped shooting 
his very first television, you know, long format television interview. So I didn't know what he was like in person. Now you can look online and find many examples of him in an interview setting. But he came into the room and he is boisterous. He is, you know, talking a mile a minute, changing the subject constantly. You know, you, you it's a little bit uh, intimidating at first because you feel like, wow, he's really calling up so many different references. He might be going from Abraham Lincoln to, you know, ancient Rome to, you know, a statistic that you're like, ah, that sounds probably made up about jobs. And um, our first meeting was like a casting session in a sense that I um, was interested in doing the film, but I did say I needed to meet him. Of course, he needed to meet me too, um, but to to figure out if he was someone who could carry, you know, a film. And I was struck by the fact that not only did I think he would be an interesting character, but it was clear that he was going to, you know, say some shit. Like he was going to reveal things, probably also when he didn't think he was revealing things about himself um, and about, you know, what his agenda was. The real thing that I had to push for was to get him on camera with other people. You know what I mean? Like I can only film if everybody agrees to be filmed. And so the limitations on my access were often based on, you know, who he was in the room with. You do get some very revealing things out of him. Can you give us an example of a moment where you kind of lulled him, let's say, into a full sense of security and he really gave something away that he wasn't expecting to? Well, I think there's moments in the film where you hear my voice and where we're talking together. In truth, I have hours of conversation between us, but the movie um, is not constructed as, you know, my travels with Steve Bannon. And I always feel like it's more impressive if the conversation is happening between characters on screen as opposed to, you know, my voice. But the exchanges that I have that are in the film are often when he's very tired um, because I always felt like that was when I was getting something at a different register and perhaps his defenses were a little bit lowered. One moment that I'm really proud of and that also does fit this category, I would be hearing him say all the time, and I'm filming him talking to journalists, talking to supporters, talking to other politicians, world leaders. One of his, on his laundry list of talking points, he loves to talk about the left and the liberals or the Democrats in the U.S. and say, you know, they're doing identity politics. Uh, You know, Democrats, if they're doing identity politics, that means we're going to win. And I just had to stop him. And I couldn't believe no one had ever said this. And I waited for a day that was probably about 10 months into filming. And I did feel like he was kind of tired that day. And I said, basically, you're doing identity politics. That's all you do. I mean, I watched a lot of speeches. I feel like I could have given his speeches. You know, that's what you trade in. You're, you know, creating this identity of the deplorables, you know, reappropriating a term that, you know, Hillary Clinton used and saying, you know, and we had this great victory with Trump and, you know, you should be mad because other people are saying you're racist. You know, that's all you do. And he, his response is like a cheeky grin and says, and your point. And I think that, you know, on a, on another day, he might have fought back and what about ism and he, he has all kinds of strategies. But in that moment, I feel like he was really tired. And I feel like that that grin, that look, you know, those words kind of said it all. I'm glad that you actually picked that because that was the one in my mind. It's an amazing moment. And you see that look on his face where you feel like he's being perhaps honest for the first time yeah. in a really scary way. And I really did think it was because he just didn't have the energy to like um, say something else. Because I feel like he is a pretty dishonest person. I think he's kind of always being himself. But I think that self is fundamentally 
fungible. You know, he's kind of the consummate consultant. He's, uh, you know, he's there for, you know, the highest bidder. He's there to do the strategy that works. He'll put forward the agenda, you know, no matter like unscrupulously if it's going to be effective. And um, so I feel like, you know, it's not about peeling back the layers and finding out that he's not the way he is publicly. I, I think it's more like end your point. This is what I've done for 40 years. How you doing? Hey. Every nationalist party that looks viable, I'm trying to help. The key point is immigration. Islam. So-called refugees. The real battle yeah. isn't in Washington. This is a future of all our states. It's time for actions. Yes. It's a global revolt. What did I just watch? Are you now consulting for the National Rally Party? In your point. <laughs> There's also a moment which I love the fact that you choose to show it in repetition, which is when he has his picture taken with a woman and a man. He puts the woman in the middle and says, a rose between two thorns. And he says this is such a sleazy way. Was he aware that you were capturing that so many times? I mean, I filmed so many photo lines, which still would constantly kind of shock me, even though I was filming it all the time, that there were all these people that really wanted their photo taken with him, you know. Um, And it was often at fundraisers. And just, it's exactly right. I mean, I I could call that also just like a bad dad joke too. Um, and but the fact that he he uses it every time that repetition, and to me, you know, it's not. I don't want to seem like I am, you know, some sort of you know overly sensitive individual, but it really is. Why do you keep calling out the fact that there's a woman in the photo and putting her in the middle every time? Like it's just weird to me. And maybe it's a generational thing, but for me, I was like, this is creepy. And I think that's one of those things where I was constantly thinking while I was filming with him, you know, what about this? You know, I felt a big sense of responsibility in making a movie about him in the first place. And so, you know, the key questions were, of course, am I doing this responsibly? Am I making sure that this is a film where it's worth being made so that for all the attention it's going to give to him, ultimately, it's not advancing his agenda. That was like my, you know, one of my top concerns every day, waking up, going to sleep was what I was thinking about. But secondly, I started to also think, you know, what about this is my film? Not just that it's my film versus his film, but like any other filmmaker who is in this context, you know, can make a film. Why is this my film? And I feel like something like The Rose Between Two Thorns really felt like, you know, would every filmmaker being there keep that camera on to get that repetition that many times to fixate on that line and to know also that it plays for comedy, but also creepily, you know, and going into making a verite film about someone that I, um, you know, hoped it would bring about a, a sharp critique on him. I knew one of the devices would be juxtaposition and would be repetition. And, you know, I feel I feel like the message works now that the movie's been, you know, in release. It's coming out here July 12th, but it's been out in the U.S. and Italy and Spain already. And the nuances are, you know, not lost on people. Well, you say that, yeah, it has to be your film and show your personality. And that's very distinct. But do you think your gender comes into it as a documentary maker specifically? Well, I think... For the process, I think that um, my gender definitely comes into it. The combination of my age, being a woman, and the fact that I am a one-person crew, I think are a bunch of things that stack together um, make it really easy to underestimate me. And that's exactly what I wanted in this case. I do think he kind of also had to be sold on the idea that 
you know, I was a great filmmaker and that it would be a prestigious film. I mean, that was kind of part of the pitch from my producer, who's also a woman, um, you know, to, to get him to agree. I think he thought I was intelligent and he treated me with respect. But on the other hand, I mean, you look in the corner and there's like, you know, a 33-year-old woman, you know, dressed in black spandex, you know, with a camera on a monopod. And I just would kind of try to f- fade away. And and I think that that can work to my advantage. Um, my daily mantra was, let him be underestimating me and let me never underestimate him. The first one's really a wish. I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't lean into like pretend I was dumb or anything like that but just the idea that you know little old me over here don't worry about me I'm just I'm just happy if I'm filming and if you let me put the microphone on you know um but the not underestimating him was really important because I think he is a very savvy uh communicator and operator and while I think that the film ends up cutting him down to size that only happens because I never never underestimated him very smart move. Let's talk about your previous documentary, Never Sorry, about a very different character. <laughs> Can you explain a bit more about that? Sure. So my film, Ai Weiwei, Never Sorry, is about the Chinese artist and activist. I followed him for three years, um, basically after the Beijing Olympics 2008, up through uh, and after his arrest and basically illegal imprisonment by uh, Chinese authorities. The movie premiered at uh, the 2012 Sundance Festival. That was my first film, so it's also really incredible to be back with, in some ways, a similar film in the sense that both of them, I took the approach of, you know, shooting myself and its verite. Um, you know, The Brink is particularly risky because of who, you know, who Bannon is, and I also chose to have no interviews. You know, the film, I think, provides a lot of context, but through news and graphics and a few other, you know, light devices with never sorry you know i had interv- i had uh, interviews and other things both of them are about very large personalities you know men in their you know weiwei was in his late 50s i think at the time bannon's in his mid 60s who also are very expert at using the media at speaking with the media that's pretty much where the comparisons end though i think these two people basically don't belong in a sentence together except for the fact that they've both had the experience of having me film them and ai weiwei is an artist who's looking for better ways to get at truths in the world at expressing himself and fundamentally his work right now and for the last several years has been all about you know, human dignity and, you know, respecting individuals. He's been focusing a lot on the um, global refugee crisis as well. Couldn't think of someone more opposite in Bannon who advances policies that are rooted only in cruelty and xenophobia. I think the way he describes the opening story of the film The Brink is important for a lot of reasons, but one of the things is he describes German workers under the Nazi regime working at companies and talking about how they separated themselves from the moral horror of the end result of their actions in helping to engineer concentration camps. And, um, you know, when he talks about separating yourself from the moral horror of it, I couldn't come up with a more elegant way to describe what I witnessed of Bannon. Ai Weiwei is always trying to get at the very core of morality and what makes us human and caring about every individual life. Um, And, you know, Bannon is not an artist, except maybe a con artist. (laughs) Well put. So what's next for you? Who's your next subject? Oh, good question. Um, I'm not able to talk about anything just yet, but 
I think after doing The Brink, it was really scary, both in production and in putting it together. And I have to say, I feel really triumphant right now because I feel like what I wanted to express with the film has really been picked up by audiences. And so, you know, I'm kind of ready for anything. And I've been working a lot with bigger crews as well and going back to shooting it myself. And I feel like, okay, now I I can do both even by choice, you know, (laughs) it's not just by necessity. So yeah, I'm working on a narrative project as well as um, some documentaries. Brilliant. Well, we can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much, Alison, for coming on Girls on Film. Thank you. This podcast is supported by Cameo, a female-run audio production house and broadcast PR consultancy who deliver entertainment content and A-list guests to international radio and podcasts. We recorded this episode in their Mayfair studio, which I highly recommend if you're doing a podcast. Their website is cameopro.com. You can catch up with classic Sundance movies like The Great Ghost World on Mubi, and they also have a spotlight on the wonderful Claire Denis in June. If you would like a month of free streaming, plus four free hand-picked UK cinema tickets, sign up at mubi.com slash girlsonfilm. Girls on Film is an HLA production produced by Hedda Archbold and Jane Long. Sooner or later, the party has to end. 